0: and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Domenici. Joining me once again, my co-host, Jason Ziak. Jay, how are
1: you this evening? Exhausted. Yeah. But I'm, re- I'm ready to rally.
0: We have literally been working on technical issues for the last hour before uh, this podcast. So, But it's all worth it because we've got a special guest tonight joining us on this episode... And future episodes. Keith Jenkins, Keith, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, guys. This is Keith. Technical difficulties, Jenkins.
1: <laughs> and and Tim, by the way, for God's sakes, you are recording, right?
2: I am recording, and
0: I'm Thank watching. God. I'm, I'm watching the needle move. I could have driven to probably one of
2: your houses and made it a lot easier.
0: That's probably true. We might want to do this in, all in the same room sometime, but.
2: Yeah, that would, Jay, that would make
0: Jay have to share his vodka, though. <laughs> uh, let's give some of the, um, the bona fides on, on Keith. Keith was a member of the WFAL uh, radio staff back with us in the 90s. Not only was he a member of the staff, he actually ran the station.
1: CEO, baby. That's,
2: that's big time. I was, yeah, I was... Uh operations or no, program director for a little while then i was general manager that was good times in the 90s man it was good times so that, last, last,
0: that
1: was the good the big good Yeah.
0: so you understand both sides of the current nfl lockout you understand labor and <laughs> management side oh uh, that's
2: that's a podcast for another day don't even get me started I, yeah, there. no kidding
0: I, I had a i had a 20-minute conversation with my dad before the podcast about the labor lockout, in which he swore. Oh. Yeah, that's how heated my dad was about the whole thing. Yeah. He actually swore. So.
1: God bless Buffalo.
0: Yeah. So I'm. I'm we're going to just jump right into this, because we've been at this a, a long time. We haven't gotten anything recorded. So I'm just going to get into this record. We're going to review Big Rex's record from 1997 in loving memory of. Uh, I'm going to give a little history, and then we're going to get into it. Big Rec formed in 94 in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, at the Berklee College of Music. Uh, the lead singer, Ian Thornley, who is a Canadian, uh, formed the band.
1: I think you met Canadian.
0: Canadian. With uh, guitarist Brian Doher- 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 Doherty? Doherty. I don't know. It's D-O-H-E-R-T-Y. I think that's Doherty. Is that Brad Doherty? Yeah, like uh, Brad Doherty, formerly of the Cleveland Casts. Um, and Larry Nance. <laughs> so like I said they released their first album in 97 it was on Atlantic and their first national tour was opening for Dream Theater.
1: Oh wow I forgot about that. That,
0: I, that would have been a hell of a show. Yeah no
1: kidding. So that's that 97.
0: Been... First single off the record is The Oath which we reached number nine uh, in the US like mainstream rock charts. Uh, They had a couple other singles that didn't chart in the U.S., but they did actually do pretty well in Canada. Uh, Blown Wide Open and That Song were both top ten singles in Canada. Second album came out in 2001. Uh, No singles charted on that one. The band broke up in 2002. Ian Thornley has released two solo albums. 2004, Come Again, and then 2009, Tiny Pictures. And then last year, Ian Thornley uh, reunited with the guitarist, uh, Doherty, for a bunch of shows where they played Thornley uh, solo songs and then Big Rec hit songs. They're all in Canada, all those shows, not in the United States. So that's the history of Big Wreck. Let's get into the record. Um, this is one, and it, we have like basically two philosophies for this show, for people who are just tuning in for the first time, or maybe s- listeners who have only been with us for an ep- episode or two. We want to dig out stuff that we've never heard, that sort of passed us by, that we were curious about, but we never listened to. Maybe there were just album covers that we saw and we thought, that's a weird looking album cover, and then we remembered it and wanted to check it out. A good example would be like the Luster record, which I never listened to, or um, the Grunt Truck, never listened to the Grunt Truck back in the 90s. We also want to find records that we did like that have been sort of forgotten. And people, if you say a band like Big Wreck, people don't remember Big Wreck. M- music nerds and, and geeks like us, we go, oh yeah, Big Wreck. But your common you know, music fan is not going to know Big Wreck. So we want to expose a band like Big Wreck to people that may have never heard of them or may have forgotten about them. You so, common
1: music fans, you. Yes. <laughs> you dirty common music fans.
0: The the the, uh, the bourgeois or the or is it the bourgeois or the proletariat? I always get those. Where the bourgeois? Where the bourgeois? Okay. So in loving memory of, I'm gonna start with you, Jay. Give give us a little brief revisiting of this record. What what were your thoughts on it? And then we'll get over to Keith.
1: Uh, at the time, uh, actually at the time and the now, I mean it's it's starkly different than um, I think anything else that happened at that time. The only similarities I think between this band and maybe what else was going on in music um, is that, you know, they sort of go through these passages where they do the down tuned kind of, you know, drop D kind of guitar riffs. Um, But other than that, the amount of uh, sort of blues influences on this and, and, and Zeppelin influence, but Zeppelin influence in like the best possible way, this nothing that anybody else at that time was doing which was pretty pretty cool um you know I, I think uh the vocally i remember more so when it came out drawing comparisons to chris Cornell. um but now when i listen to it i don't hear it as much you know i don't i don't hear as much of the Soundgarden thing maybe just because of time and hearing different singers and stuff i kind of hear uh this singers is is his own his own voice and being pretty distinctive it was also pretty unique at that time to have a band, you know, chart to number nine and, and have all those guys be from Berkeley. That's not being from Berkeley in the late nineties, mid nineties was not cool. No. You guys remember back, which kind of makes sense of why they would have toured with dream theater because those are Berkeley guys too. Um, but you know, that, that was not a credential that you'd put on your resume in hopes of, of getting cred. Um, for that time period, it, it, it didn't really help. It probably hurt you more. But for you know, being music, being a music geek and and uh, loving guitar, and loving like slide guitar and blues guitar, and then <clears throat> their ability to kind of mix that with kind of contemporary heavy stuff, I, to to me it was it was it was awesome. Uh, you know, everybody on the in the band are great players. Uh, I love the drums on this album. The drummer not only is he is he uh, you know play really cool parts but the sound is amazing and one thing before I turn it over to you guys to kind of get your your thoughts on it was uh I was really struck when I re-listened to it now just how well they use guitar effects which is the kind of thing uh, you know being guitar player and, and Keith I'm sure you'll have some uh, thoughts on this too it's the kind of thing where you know you can you hear them used in the wrong way a lot but these guys know exactly what they're doing with them So a song like The Oaf, you know, when they use the tremolo, Um, track two, that song you know the the delay it becomes such a huge part of this the song and and the overall sound and they actually like play the effect they don't let the effect take over the song they actually are good enough that they know how to play off of it Um, that's something struck me that uh, I I didn't really at the time realize they were using as many delays and tremolos and that kind of that kind of stuff on the on the uh, guitars when I first heard it, and then I'll, when I listen to it now, I can pick up on all that stuff, which was kind of cool because they just use it so well. So, we, what did you guys think?
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think you covered most of the, uh, the the really center points of the record. I think the first thing when I put this this CD back in today, and, I, and honestly, I haven't listened to these guys in a while, um, was definitely the drums, the Bonham-esque drums. I mean, it's just like thunderous drums and. Yeah. And I think, and you kind of hit. You were talking Jay about what was going on at the time, and you compared them to Soundgarden. Soundgarden, I know, in '97, I think was when they put out their last record, and they were sort of at their peak, and you know were kind of a big deal. So I think that's probably where the easy comparison came in. Um, But you mentioned the 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 guitars and the drop tunings and the Zeppelin-esque thing, and I know a lot of that stuff originates out of slide tuning, which most guitar players, maybe a lot of guitar players understand. And again, if you just think about what was going on at the time, like musicianship was not necessarily a centerpiece of rock music at the time. I mean, drop tuning was big because guys couldn't really play a lot of intricate things on the guitar. So you, you do a drop D tuning and you can basically play, you know, a, guitar, a chord with one finger and make it sound heavy. And, you know, this band, I think it was amazing because they were actually playing really intricate riffs, out-of-drop tunings, which, you know, it's kind of what the old blues guys did, but they were doing it in a rock format, which is kind of what Jimmy Page did in Led Zeppelin, and then and you throw that bottom-esque. I mean, I don't know, Jay, can you tell me how big yeah. that kick drum was, because it sounds like it's, you know, <laughs> like a 30-inch kick drum or something. I mean, it's ridiculous, and I again, the, I saw this band live, I think, maybe two or three times in that era, and I don't know that I've ever seen guys other than Dream Theater um, or Rush or something like that, like, I mean, doing this kind of music, I don't know if I've ever seen guys as musically talented as a group as as these guys were live, and I know it kind of gets away from the record itself, but it's funny because I, when I was listening to stuff, it just, it took me back to seeing them and just remembering, like, all the guitars the guy had, the he had, like, every song he had a different vintage guitar out there, and... Um, I think, especially now in an era where they're saying that rock music is no longer popular, to put a record like this on right now is just kind of like, almost like rediscovering Led Zeppelin or something. It was kind of cool, and, and yeah, a great vocalist. Um, actually, I think he's you know he's a really good songwriter too. Um, to put out an album that has 17 songs on it, and they all be and you know, there's not a lot of filler on this record. I mean, I know as it gets later into the album it almost gets exhausting just because there's so much rocking going on and they don't really let up. But, uh, but I mean, it
1: definitely slows down. Like I was trying to find the mark on the record for me where it starts to uh, get a little thin, you know, but even like, you know, I mean you could say like maybe by track nine, you know, you sort of get through the, the hooky songs, which are at the beginning, you get through some of the ballads and then you start to, you know get into more album material, but even like track 13, which is you know six and a half-minute song or six almost seven-minute song. Yeah. There's so much great, like, I was really listening to that, and, and just the slide stuff that's going on in that song, just from a guitar standpoint alone, it's yeah. so just awesome to listen to.
0: Don't
1: Not be the greatest song, but it's 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 really epic. It's long, and there's just so many great parts. It's you know it's not like it's not worth listening to. It's just you can tell like uh, from a songwriting perspective, the good stuff is definitely pushed towards the front.
2: You know, another interesting thing I found, and I know Tim kind of did a a pretty good history of the band and sort of where they're all at now. One blurb I did find was that the bass player Dave Henning um, was last year he was supposed to be the touring bass player for Slash's solo band. I don't know if he ever made it out with them but then it sounds like he was replaced not long after that with the guy that's playing with them now but um i thought that was interesting that you know he ended up hooking up with with guys like slash because again when you look at in 1997 when this record came out um you know 80s metal was probably the last stuff that was popular that had this kind of musicianship in it and i think you know as in 97 we were far from that stuff being somewhat cool or popular again so
1: yeah
2: um, i guess it seems like to me it doesn't seem like that far off of a um a stretch for some of these guys to end up playing with you know somebody like slash or you know hard rock metal guitar guys from the 80s
1: well no, yeah I mean, certainly now it doesn't you know that that all start it, it you put things in perspective now with some time right from the uh from the late 90s so now you can definitely see like, yeah, these guys were doing, you know, a modern take on Zeppelin and that's not that different than Guns N' Roses, who, you know, did a modern take on, uh, Rolling Stones, if you want to say, or, you know, some other bands, but yeah. And what did you uh, think of when you sort of revisited this?
0: I think the thing listening to this record, what that really caught my ear, like you guys mentioned was the blues influence, the Southern rock, Influence in the guitar playing when I first heard this record. I, I was sort of a fan of the singles of the uh, the first couple songs But listening back now, I, I'm sort of more interested in the album tracks track 13 overemphasizing Like you mentioned the slide guitar in that really really like that song I like the trick of over emphasizing the vocal delivery while singing overemphasizing with the chorus of the song um, mm-hmm. I'm also a big fan of um track two, that song, which I loved that song back when it came out, when it was a single. Yeah.
1: And How they, great is that verse?
0: Well, the verse is great, but I also like, there's a little trick in the chorus that they do, which is just one of those like songwriting tricks that really good songwriters throw in, and you don't even really notice it. When they get to the chorus, it goes to halftime for parts of the chorus. And yep. the first time they do it, it's just sort of a straight guitar riff, but the second time when they go to the halftime, there's a riff underneath it that the second guitar is doing and if it was a lesser band they wouldn't have done that they would have just played the same riff again but because they're a little bit smarter and they wanted to you know throw in something that's a little more complex a little adds a little more flavor they play the first time one way and the second time a little bit different and i just like that touch i like that like attention to detail
1: It's craftsmanship. It's just, I mean, the guitars
0: sound amazing. Like you said, the, the drums sound great. I mean, it's a heavy record. The Soundgarden thing, I think if you like Soundgarden, especially the last two records, Super Unknown and Down on the Upside, this is mm-hmm. your alley. Because, yeah. yes, his vocal at times sounds like that, um, but there's also that classic rock Zeppelin um, sort of sound to what he's doing as well. I was just kind of blown away at how good this record sounds I guess it shouldn't be surprised because these are guys were all music students um, and they're not just music students in the terms that they know their scales like these guys have played around are playing around with multiple genres of music on the same record You know, well, hitting- it's not
1: often that these kids that come out of Berkeley they you know form bands that really play the blues authentically the way that Zeppelin played, you know, interpreted the blues. I mean, so you look at, like, a band like Wolfmother. Like, you could argue, like, they kind of sound like Zeppelin, but they're, like, Zeppelin simplified down to the most basic level. And these guys are actually, like, you know, musicians who have learned theory and learned how to play and learned everything and are approaching it, you know, the way that, you know, in in more a complex, layered, nuanced way, you know, which is pretty different like most of the guys that come out of that school are not doing that kind of thing they're you know wanking off with guitar solos and playing jazz and shit like that so
0: yeah this this could have gone in a very bad direction and and they really focused on the songs and and keeping them you know tight keeping the arrangements tight keeping the uh, there's not a lot of indulgence on this record. I mean, they're pretty, there's not, for a, a guitar heavy
2: album, it's not solo heavy. I was just going to point that out. Um, what was, I was actually, when I was going back to listen to it, I was thinking, oh man, there's probably some sweet guitar solos on this record. But actually, what they do instead of guitar solos, which is, I think is really cool, is uh, transition. So, like, maybe from a, coming out of a chorus to go back into a verse, there's like a, a four bar, you know, riff that they just jam out or, or they do it in between verses or like after a cool line, they'll just drop into some other part. And it's kind of, you know, where the guitars really do something interesting and, but it's not like a wanking out solo where the guys just shredding all over the fretboard or trying to basically masturbate on the guitar. It's, it's more of like a, it's something to make the song that much cooler, you know, especially if you're watching them live. It's like, it's like this, this record translates really well to this being like a, an amazing live band. Or if so like they were able song.
1: to pull all this stuff off live?
2: Yeah. And it actually, you can go on YouTube, there's some clips. Uh, they played some some shows at like TV stuff in Canada for Much Music, which used to be like the Canadian MTV. Um, and they, uh, like they played the Oath and they had that tremolo guitar part and they extended it and... Kind of hmm. dust variations all over it. and It kind of has like
0: a Baba O'Reilly
2: feel to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which I was
0: gonna let me into what I was gonna ask you guys because since you're the guitar players, are they playing around with more than just drop D? Because it seems like a lot of the tunings on this record are probably more complex than that.
1: They're probably open G, right?
2: I, I think they're open fly tunings. So I don't, I don't think they're drop D at all. To be okay. honest with you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, think, I mean, uh, open G and, and drop D are are if you play the, you know, riff sort of bar chord riff styles, you can get them to sound. I mean, they sound similar. It's just the open string, the strings at the bottom allow you to do the slidey stuff.
2: Yeah, there's an open D tuning that they might that works for slide as well, which is what they might be doing. I, I'm not sure, or even an open C. Yep. Um, I think like the, what they did uh, is that. Brian Doherty, I think he played standard tuning, and uh, Ian Thornley, I think, was doing most of the slide stuff. But really, I think he plays most of the leads and does most of that crazy stuff. He does all the slide stuff. Wow, he's pretty. Have I you mean, wanna,
1: the, the those Thornley albums. Are you saying that those are the so, solo albums?
2: Yeah, yeah. that's what oh, I was. Okay. You know, was interesting. I when I was reading the sort of what happened to him after Big Rack. He kind of aligned himself with, like, the Chad Kroger's from, like, uh, Nickelback and, like, those guys. Like, I think they're Canadian, too. So, and that's kind of where that Thornley record, the first one, I only heard the one song off because it was like a free download on iTunes. But it sounded like a dumbed-down version of Big Rec. Like you took all the cool things about Big Rec that we just talked about, like the cool transitions and the, and the interesting guitar playing and the big drums and, like, just stripped them down to, like, these really basic pop rock songs. That's kind of what basically it sounded like he was trying to do a Nickelback kind of thing with his boys. And, I mean, it's still better than most of those bands, but it wasn't what Big Wreck was. So I'm kind of interested now that the guitar player is kind of back in the fold, if they're going to record again. Like, cause I, I think they're touring as Ian e. Thornley and Big Wreck or something. It's not like they're yeah, not calling it Big Wreck. So I, oh, I'm interested really? to see if they... Yeah, I don't know. If, I mean, that's what they did last year. I don't know if they're still doing that, but um, I think the drummer lives in the US somewhere. I don't think he's in Canada, and I don't think the bass player, I don't know if he lives in Canada either, so I think for the guitar player and Ian Thornley are the only two that are still in Canada, I believe.
1: So maybe to wrap this up, this is a theme that I like to pull out every now and then. Why wasn't this album bigger?
0: Oh. Well, it was released in 97, and I can tell you that 97, the fall of 97, was right after you saw Soundgarden break up. You saw a lot of the grunge bands, for lack of a better term, like Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, sort of dissolve, either either fall apart because of drugs like Alice in Chains or Pearl Jam going into the, you know, and a lot of pop started popping up at that time. That's when Hanson put out their record. That's when the Spice Girls put out their record. And it seemed mm-hmm. like MTV stopped paying attention to alternative music. I mean, Big Rec got played on, on you know, after midnight on Sunday nights. And they, yeah, I, rem- I remember yeah. that. I'm, that's
2: probably around the time where MTV stopped showing videos too, wasn't it? Because, I mean, the real world started in the 90s. Yeah, early 90s. Yeah. And it seemed like... You got
0: real world, you got road rules, you had all those yeah. shows. So, like, during the day... You'd have those shows plus trl you know for four hours in the afternoon or whatever it was so you weren't uh, seeing big wreck
1: this was the trl era yeah so this pushed yeah videos towards the towards the either sunday evenings or just after midnight in general
0: and i, and I think the other problem is that you know if you're but it wasn't al-
1: like go ahead
0: if you're an alternative station is this alternative enough for you and if this if you're a hard rock Station is this hard rock enough for you? Like this isn't going to be played on the same station that would be playing Metallica and whatever the hard rock, uh, you know, albums of that time, you know, heavy metal stuff. But it's also not really alternative. I mean, this doesn't necessarily fit with the stuff yeah. like Everclear. You know what I mean? This isn't this isn't in that sort of genre either. So I think they kind of got stuck in between. You know, this '97s kind of a weird. Uh, time period for this album to come out. If it had come out 95, 94, maybe it would have done better. If it had come out in 2000, maybe it would have gotten picked up in the same, you know, 98, 90, 99, 2000. Maybe we would have gotten the same success that like, you know, those bands like Creed and Nickelback and 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 Stained or whatever, whatever got um, success around that time. It's also around the time. It's funny you mentioned that, uh, Nickelback. I what didn't Our Lady Peace like try to make a Creed record right, right around then too like 99
2: 2000. Mm. I think that was early two, 2000s or something maybe.
0: Yeah, like it seemed like the Canadian bands any Canadian artists were like jumping on the Nickelback uh, Creed wagon for a little while.
1: <laughs> the, uh, the the record they made with Bob Rock, yeah, know.
0: the awful awful. awful. Was... Yeah. Yeah, I just try to imagine that record didn't happen.
1: So, so i think our our answer here is maybe just timing
0: yeah timing this was weird
1: but uh it's definitely i mean to me it's 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 worth going back and listening and getting because it's pretty special i mean you don't often find guys that are this talented that know how to play you know real blues riffs and upright songs and i mean they can kind of do it all so you don't find it very often
2: any last words keith yeah, I would just say that anybody listening who hasn't heard this record, I think it's it's definitely worth going out and getting. Uh, I do think they probably were a victim of timing, but I kind of wonder, listening to this now, I'm like, I wonder when they would have, what would have been a good time frame for them to be successful in, and I don't know if there really was. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, I mean, there's. it seems like there's always very few bands in history where you look like bands like Rush, or bands like Dream Theater. Um, that kind of breakthrough, being like, doing these amazing musical things that, you know, the normal average musician doesn't do. And I think uh, they were one of those cases, and I just, unfortunately, they didn't have the success that some of those other bands did, where they could, you know, build at least enough of a following to keep keep going and keep making records and have people appreciate them, at least in the United States, anyway.
0: Speaking of Rush, uh, Neil Diamond made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Rush still yeah. in there. <laughs>
1: Uh, so, sort of, sort of That's a different stuff.
0: podcast. That's a different yeah. podcast. Yeah, that's a whole... All right. Well, I, you know, if you people that are listening to the podcast haven't heard this record, go to digmeoutpodcast.com and you will find a link to the Amazon page. Click through that. Give us the referral because we need the money to run the podcast. We appreciate it when you do that. Uh, you can buy this. On uh, Amazon, it might even be on iTunes. I don't know. Since it was on Atlantic, and that was actually a big record label, uh, it might be on iTunes. I'm I'm pretty sure you can buy new copies at least on Amazon. If not, I'm sure you can get a used copy for a pretty decent price. So, Jay, I want to thank you once again for uh, joining me, Keith. Thank you for uh, joining us tonight. I think we're yeah. going to be back in the future on a future episode. So
2: I hope so. I, I enjoyed this. So thanks for having me, guys.
0: Awesome. And uh, thank you, everybody, out there for listening to another episode of Dig Me Out. So the mess
1: is going
0: for. Outside, I I'd hear them say. Mm. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. i got a
1: P. pee!